Hi again, folks, and welcome to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. Great to have you with us, as always. And we've got an extra long episode for you today. This one is an interview I've given this week to a great little podcast by the name of Leaving California, which is hosted by Brian Poor, commercial real estate specialist from California, and his wife, Patricia. They've recently kicked off their podcast, which is aimed mainly at local California or other U.S. states-based um, investors and buyers who are considering venturing out of their backyards to invest in other states and even countries. And they've invited me to come on their show and tell their listeners a bit about Japan. And I've really enjoyed their casual, chatty interview style and the range of the topics that they like to review when they interview people um, who are living and working in each of those markets that they cover. So they touch on everything from mentality, lifestyle, uh, unique characteristics of each and every location, and of course, property market uh, fundamentals. Really great format for a podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to it uh, as much as I did, uh, being on it. And as a side note, it's really great to see more and more North American investors expanding their horizons and venturing overseas. We've certainly been taking on more and more U.S. and Canadian-based clients these last few years. I'm guessing most likely because the markets in those countries have well and truly recovered since the meltdown a decade or so ago. So properties are now less affordable, yields are more compressed, and that's something we touch upon in the interview as well. Uh, just before we get right in there, uh, just letting you know that registration for our free webinar is almost closed. Based on your responses and registrations, it looks like it's going to be taking place on a Sunday evening Japan time, sometime in late February or early March. And we're going to be covering a lot of information there, probably about two hours long. We will try to include as much of the stuff that can't usually be covered in audio format. So really reviewing spreadsheets, doing some deal analysis, looking at deal samples, including exterior, interior photos, floor plans, layouts, and so forth. And of course, taking your questions, either one submitted in advance or live via chat during the webinar and answering those as well. So if you haven't done so yet, we'll have the link to the registration form in our show notes again as well. And of course, a link to Brian and Patricia's podcast as well. Be sure to register if you'd like to join us for the webinar and definitely make sure you're filling in your email address. Some of you haven't done that when they register, but the webinar software requires an email address to set you up as a participant and send you the link for joining the webinar. So don't skip that field if you fill in the form and you do want to join us live. All right, so without further ado, here's my interview with Leaving California, Brian and Patricia Poor. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Leaving California, What to Expect When Considering Japan with the Poor team. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Ziv. Hello, Ziv. How are you? Hey, Ziv. Good, thanks. How are you guys? Doing good. You are our first official overseas podcast. We went to Canada you're the first one to cross water. Oh, wow. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we uh, had some technical difficulties the past few days, but we got it all worked out and we're back up in gear. So if you, if you want to get things kicked off, I'm pretty excited to hear about real estate and Japan in general. Um, if you want to kick everything off, just, just tell us a little bit about you and what got you into the business. Okay, um, well, I'm uh, Israeli, born and bred in Israel. I moved to Australia in my late 20s, and I was living there um, comfortably till I met my um, my first wife, and she was Japanese. I met her in Australia. So I've been coming and going to Japan for probably about 
13, 15 years now. And my wife, unfortunately, passed away um, soon after we had our first child together. Oh. And um, yeah, and that, that sort of got me into a mind frame of wanting to keep his connection to Japan alive as much as I could. So I was looking for some way to get a um, residential and financial foothold in the country and had a bit of real estate experience in Australia at the time. So I sort of naturally uh, went towards that and purchased a few properties for our own personal investment use. Um, I met a lovely lady who helped me with the business side of thing and the Japanese side of things um, who later on became my um, second wife, my current wife and my um, business partner as well. And then we figured out there's, you know, quite a few people who'd be interested in the services that we provide and, you know, what we've learned in the process and the rest is history. As they say, that was eight years ago now. Wow. How, how was it going? How, how complicated was it to get everything going, being a foreigner going into another country? Um, well, Japan is probably the only country uh, in the Asia-Pacific region that doesn't actually impose any limits, any legal limits on foreigners purchasing. So there's no, all land is freehold, aside from some culturally protected uh, areas or properties. And there's no unique taxes or other limits uh, like you have in other Asian countries. Um, actually, you're, you're, you're not actually obliged to pay residential taxes as well. So it's even a bit cheaper for foreign purchasers. But that's on the uh, macro level. On the micro level, the issue is that Japan is very insulated culturally. So not many people speak English here. There's definitely no official documentation in English or almost none. And they're very foreigner shy. So... There's always a need. It's been getting a little bit better, but there's still very much a need for somebody to sort of bridge that cultural and language gap, um, which is really what we do for people. Gotcha. Interesting. How, so you and your wife are definitely a team. Does she do a lot of the translating for you or how do you guys work that out? Yeah, I mean, my Japanese is okay. It's it's pretty it's pretty fluent on a street level. But the thing is that they've got um, quite a few politeness or honorific levels and different vocabularies when you're in a business transaction. Um, so she and her team definitely handle everything on the Japanese side. I handle everything on the customer side. So I spend my days um, chatting in English usually. And then we provide rough translations for each other and everything that requires more than that will have to be done by a certified translator anyways. But usually that's not something that needs to be done. Um, so we provide sort of ad hoc summaries of documentation for people to know what they're going to be uh, signing or what they're going to be receiving. And then we provide the rest as we go along. Gotcha. So do you, do you actually have real estate agents out there or how are your guys, how is that structured? So we're buyers agents and portfolio managers. So we work with third parties. So we work with the realtors, with the property managers. Um, we're the single point of contact for the customer and we're the Japanese face for the Japanese side. So customers give us a limited power of attorney document that allows us to represent them in anything to do with the property portfolio in Japan. And then um, with that limited power of attorney, we're then um, qualified and authorized to uh, handle anything on the Japanese side on their behalf. Gotcha. What a... So there's really no extra steps that need to be done if somebody wants to come from the U.S. or Canada to purchase there. 
Did you just go through the official process? Yeah, it's a completely standard property transaction uh, once you bridge the cultural and language gap. So, you know, in the rest of the world, usually there's going to be um, a plethora of English-speaking property professionals who would love to work with foreign investors, and you sort of have to um, pick the non-dodgy ones or the more professional ones and sort of select who who you want to work with to make sure that everything uh, runs kosher kind of thing. Here it's the opposite. So everyone is honest and everyone is professional um, and everyone does a good job and no one's going to swindle you, but it's more difficult to find the ones that will actually agree to work with foreigners, Um, which even for us, I mean, now we've sort of perfected our pitch when we introduce ourselves to a property agent or a property manager for the first time. We sort of let them know in advance that they'll never have to speak to scary foreigners and they'll never have to read or write anything in English. And now we get probably 70 or 80% of them that agree to work with us. Um, But initially it was difficult. And if you're entering on your own, you're probably going to be selected to just about 10 or limited to about 10 or 15% of the market that will actually agree to work directly with foreigners. Gotcha. So so you're a good middleman to help somebody that's coming over there, try and get, get the process and purchase something. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Gotcha. I just wanted to kind of clarify that out there. So before we kind of jump into the real estate side that I'm interested to talk to you about, because I don't know anything about what's going on over there, to be honest, let's kind of talk about the culture, the restaurants, and what makes Japan special. Oh, wow. I'm not sure how many hours we've got for that. (laughs) And you you can start off. You can start off however you want. If you want to talk about the employers, the restaurants, the nightlife, whatever, I'll kind of let you speak to how you want to lay it out. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, Japan's a bit of a alien planet, so to speak, when compared with any other countries. And they're definitely very different to the rest of their Asian neighbors. I mean, mentality-wise, they're probably closer in the mindset to North Europeans, so Germans or Swiss. So everything is very... Uh, by the book, there's very um, there's a lot of rules for anything that you want to do. There are protocols that you have to adhere to whenever you're in, in sort of interaction, not just on the business side, socially as well. Um, lots of little hidden cultural landmines that you want to avoid stepping on. Um, and everything's got a paper trail a mile long. That's on the official side. And they're very, very honest. So one of the reasons that they're really scared of foreigners is because they've got this sort of childlike innocence about them. I and, mean, you know, you drop your wallet in a busy Tokyo street, there'll be five people running after you to, to return it to you. Um, you leave your bag. People actually, if somebody's sitting in a cafe, they might leave their bag on the seat when they go to the toilet to reserve the seat kind of thing. I mean, crime here is very, very low. And people are just generally um, very open and honest and... Um, and polite. So that sort of seeps into everything. So everything is tidy. Everything is neat. Um, you don't see trash in the street. You don't, there's no ghettos or bad neighborhoods. Or I mean, there might be white collar, blue collar, but nothing that you'd need to watch out for. Um, culturally, I mean, it's Asian. I mean, they've been here for centuries and there's, there's endless things to see and do. And, um, Festivals and temples and museums and the architecture is, is mind-blowing for me. Um, nightlife, it depends on where you are. So Japan, 
there's a huge differentiation here between the city and the rural areas. In the rural areas, um, which are slowly dying out and conglomerating into the bigger cities, there's not much to do nightlife-wise. Everything sort of shuts down at 4 or 5 o'clock. But the vast majority of the population, and definitely the expats, live in the bigger cities. And the bigger cities are just amazing, I guess. Tokyo is the world's biggest metropolis, but not just Tokyo. Any big city in Japan is usually a 24-7 kind of place. So bars, restaurants, uh, nightlife venues are open, not quite around the clock, but definitely until um, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning during the week and 5, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning um, on the weekends. Um, there's a pretty vibrant music scene. Um, a lot of it is J-pop, Japanese pop, which is not to everyone's liking, but... Um, <laughs> and the food, I mean, the food we could go on for days about Japanese. I mean, not just sushi and ramen, which is what the West usually knows about, but um, oh, it just goes on and on, man. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> just you tip, typically, I would like to say, because we know food varies in a lot of areas. I mean, whether you want Italian, Chinese food, pizza, like everything varies, but what what are the unique restaurants there that you would recommend if someone's to visit Japan? Like you got to at least go try these couple restaurants just to, for the experience and the food. Uh, well, first thing off, if you do know sushi and ramen, which are sort of um, popular in the West as well, you definitely want to try the authentic Japanese version of it because we just get a taste of it in Western countries. It's not nearly, um, nearly as diverse as it is here. There's um, teppanyaki restaurants where the chef cooks the food in front of you or in some places you can actually cook it yourself. So you're like sitting around a flat, open um, metal barbecue spot and they provide things for you to cook it, to cook on it or they cook it for you. Um, there's katsudon, which is kind of a rice bowl with a sort of breadcrumbed pork cutlet on it and there's various levels of meat that you can choose from depending on the restaurant there's okonomiyaki which is kind of a mix between an omelet and a pancake i guess it's a savory sort of um um savory sort of pancake with um, vegetables or seafood or meat there's um if you're a drinker there's a nihonshu which is known in the west as sake which is uh the more refined rice wine that we're all familiar with. And there's also shochu, which is a more similar probably to vodka, and that can be made from uh, potato or sweet potato or barley or rice as well. And um, there's a very good selection of beers and whiskey. Japan's actually uh, beat Scotland at its own game a few years ago in the uh, whiskey championships or whatever it's called. Wow. Um, yeah. And again, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you, do you guys have some distilleries and breweries out there? I know... Those are kind of like getting real widespread and each place has its own. Do you guys have like a lot of sake distilleries out there? Yeah, definitely. Um, more of them. Sake usually is best where the water is constantly flowing and fresh. So anywhere where there's um, uh, rivers that are close to the source, you'll have um, some very good sake breweries. Um, down south, you have a lot of shochu breweries, um, whiskey distilleries, craft beers uh, taken off in the last few years as well. Uh, but even Japan's uh, standard run-of-the-mill beers are pretty good. What what are the uh, what are the good local ones that you recommend for beer? You mean? Yes. 
Um, Asahi, which is imported to the West as well, is a pretty good one. Kirin is the second most popular one. That's probably a bit lower, uh, a bit lower quality, but still very good and very cheap. And each of them also have quite a few uh, versions. So they have the malts, their lagers, their, um, it's endless. I'm not much of a beer drinker, actually. I'm more on the um, spirit side myself. So I'm probably not the authority, but um, they are popular. What, what a, let's see. There's so many questions. How about like, uh, okay, so like the temples and stuff. Where, I know just the architecture is really appealing out there. What are like some must-sees or must-visits? It's a matter of personal taste, I guess. I mean, for me personally, I actually prefer this smaller sort of out-of-the-way, um, very old wooden-type temples that you'd get yeah. out in the countryside or in smaller suburbs of the big cities. Um, but some people, I mean, if you go to Kyoto, is, which is the cultural heart of Japan in many ways, there are some huge mega temples, you know, all glittery gold. There's the Golden Pagoda. There's um, there's quite a few of them where you can just walk on the temple grounds for a good few hours and it sort of never ends. But then when you're driving into the countryside, you know, if you're just driving up a mountain road, you suddenly see a little white flag on the side and a path leading up into the forest kind of thing. And you'll find these gorgeous old um, structures that have been left there and maintained by the local communities, which are my favorite. Um, so, I mean, if you're looking for the main tourist ones, I guess Kyoto would be the place to go, but th there are temples everywhere. Gotcha. Okay. You're going to, uh, we always do a video recap, um, what our takeaways is of an area and put it on YouTube. You're definitely going to test some of our, uh, our skills with names of restaurants and architecture and buildings and places. Yep, happy to. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 about like major employers out there? What are some of your major employers and stuff out that way? Um, well, it depends if you're a local or an expat. If you're a local, then Japan's economy mainly actually as much as people know the bigger companies out here, the economy is still very much um, dependent on smaller or medium enterprises. So there are a lot of um, small companies in each of the big cities that each specialize in. Uh, that's another thing the Japanese really like is they like to be, uh, I mean, there's no jack of all, all trades, master of none here. Everyone's really focused on one particular niche that they do. So there are a lot of small companies uh, and shops that specialize in one particular manufacturing gig or one particular product that they do, and they'll keep doing that forever. Um, but expats would probably find it more difficult to work for these companies because they're very traditional. They, again, wouldn't speak English. And unless you're really fluent and living here for a long time, and unless they're really looking for a foreigner for any specific reason, they'll always stick to the Japanese. So the expats tend to work for the bigger companies that we all know in the West as well. The, uh, uh, automakers, the electronic makers, companies like uh, Mitsubishi or Hitachi or Sony, and uh, car makers like uh, Toyota or Nissan and so forth. And these guys are either headquartered in uh, Tokyo, Osaka, or Nagoya in most cases, which are the three main industrial hubs. And then they'll have um, branch headquarters in each of the other big cities. So Sapporo, Fukuoka, um, Yokohama will also have 
company branches of those companies. And these are the ones that usually employ the expats. The most international financial institutions also have a representation, at least in Tokyo. So a lot of the expats work for them as well. And the other places where you'll find expats working are uh, university campuses. So English teachers usually enter the country that the easiest way to enter the country and start working is an English teacher. You can do that if you're um, even in when you're very young in your 20s. And then as you progress in your career, you might become a university professor at one of the bigger campuses. They all have uh, English uh, literature departments or just English departments. And that's where you'll find most of the expats working. Gotcha. Okay. Huh. So are businesses running pretty much 24-7, like your manufacturing plants, or do you guys have like your standard working times, like back this way? Um, Japanese are pretty hard workers. Um, it's still very much a patriarchy in the sense that uh, it's usually the men who are working the longer hours, and the women um, are unfortunately still delegated to very um, sort of meaningless office admin roles in most companies. So the men will be working every day from 9 or 9.30. Um, and while work officially might end 5 or 6 p.m., there's, a again, the whole cultural thing. So they're sort of um, unofficially obliged to go out drinking with the boss and their co-workers um, almost every day after work. So they tend to come home very late at night. Um, so official working hours are kind of your typical nine to five, but it just goes on and on after that with social obligations. Gotcha. That, that's kind of interesting. How, how big is Japan? Um, I think from southwest to north, it's sort of... Um, bent pencil shape so it's an elongated from southwest to northeast i think we're in the southwest um almost at the edge and from here to tokyo it's about um 12 or 1400 k's and then there's another 12 or 1400 k's going northward so probably take you three or four days if you're driving across it okay so pretty widespread yeah and, and you cover how much of the area? Um, we, we're nationwide. So we're based in Fukuoka, which is the southwest, uh, sort of the gateway to Southeast Asia as well. And um, so it's actually closer. We are actually closer to um, Taiwan, Korea, and parts of China than we are to Tokyo itself. We're just an hour or so um, flight away from these places. Um, but we settled here because we like the place. We like living here. It's a perfect place to raise a family in. Business-wise, we cover all of Japan. Gotcha. Okay. And I know it's like an offset of like almost little islands all over. Do they all connect by road or how, how is that kind of put together? So there's the main landmass, which is called Honshu. That's where Tokyo, Nagoya, um, Osaka, Kyoto, the main cities are. Then there's another big landmass to the southwest, which is where we are. That's called Kyushu. And another big landmass to the north, which is called Hokkaido. That's snow, snow country. Those main landmasses are all connected by, um, by roads. You can drive across them. The train goes across them. Um, or Hokkaido, sorry. Hokkaido, actually, you might have to uh, catch a flight to, I think. Um, there's another little landmass uh, a bit south of the main island that's called Shikoku. It's mostly rural with maybe two or three um, bigger cities there or medium-sized cities. And the rest are 
islands, but they're pretty small. So they're, they're surrounding the country on all sides, but there's not much going on there. Okinawa to the uh, southwest is probably the only uh, group of islands that's actually got a big city on it and a sort of bustling economy. It's also where a lot of the U.S. Army bases uh, still active in Japan are. Gotcha. What? So, so on a lot of the land, how is it structured? Is it mainly city or do you have a lot of, do you guys have mountainous areas or what does a typical landscape look like? Yeah, Japan is, I think, 70 or 80% mountainous. So whichever way you look, you're bound to see a mountain at some point. And the cities are usually located um, either on the flatland um, beyond the mountains or in the valleys between them. Okay, gotcha. So- do you guys get a lot of snow out there, or what is the what are the, like the weather? What's the weather pattern? Um, well, the country spreads out north to west, so you get quite a quite a diversity in climates. The south, Okinawa is very tropical. That's the southernmost point, um, kind of warm all year round. They do have seasons, but they're not that um, that differentiated. And the north is is snow country, so half the year snows up there. That's where most of the ski resorts are. Um, and in the middle is uh, kind of moderate, like, and great for ski, but a bit harder to get uh, tenants if you're into investment properties that time of year. So some of our customers prefer not to buy up north unless they're really um, um, snow hounds. And then the middle is moderate. I mean, winter where we live, for example, which is a little bit southern uh, of the uh, of the middle line probably get one or two days of snow a year. Temperatures would rarely uh, fall below zero Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, sorry. Um, We don't get too much uh, ice and snow here. Um, But, I mean, if you go two, three hours north, there's already a lot of it. Now, is it it Japan that has the huge indoor ski resort thing? Um, I haven't heard about that one. I'm not sure. That might be China? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I remember seeing or hearing something about a huge, like indoor ski and there's like all man-made and stuff. And I was just wondering if that was located anywhere over there. Um, we do have something like that, but it's not really snow ski. It's sort of like plastic slopes. <laughs> plastic slopes. Yeah. Gotcha. What, so what, what the be? what is the, uh, what is the commute like? Um, what are what is the typical structure of the roads? Do you guys have a lot of trains? Um, um, yeah, I think best best train system in the world, at least as far as uh, punctuality goes. Like um, they're really to to uh, to the second on time always kind of thing. And you, if you are if they're late for any reason, which is unfortunately usually going to be a suicide on the track sort of thing, and um, they'll actually issue you. Um, issue you with little um, notes to provide to your employer or to your wife for apologizing for the train uh, being late. So trains are massive here, whether it's um, subways or uh, bullet trains, the really fast trains which go between the cities, um, or just normal trains in areas where you can't actually construct a subway for any reason. That's the major mode of transportation. Um, People do drive a lot within the cities, between the cities, um, the truck drivers uh, take the normal roads. But if you, um, as a tourist, if you would be driving along these normal roads, it can be a very slow progress. And the motorways, uh, toll fees are actually very expensive. So most people would only go between cities via car if they actually have to take the entire family somewhere where the train train access is limited. 
most of the time it'll be via train. Gotcha. So you, you had mentioned the suicide thing. Is that something that's pretty common? That is that a huge issue out there? Um, yeah, it's got a pretty high suicide rate here, mostly due to the uh, work and social pressures um, that the Japanese are subjected to. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love living here um, as an expat, though I wouldn't want to be, probably wouldn't want to be a Japanese person in Japan because the amount of official and unofficial pressure that you get from uh, work, from families is, is pretty high, which brings uh, the suicide rates pretty high too, unfortunately. Gotcha. I know. I had a touch on it. I would like to cover any aspects of something to look out for or pay attention to or something. What? So what, what does the, what does the healthcare and the school systems look like out there? Um, the school system is relatively high level. I mean, Asia as a rule tends to be higher, um, but more on the science side, on the uh, cultural language side, Japan is still a bit backwards or actually a lot backwards compared to its neighbors. Again, it's very insular. So there's not much um, foreign language education here. They've only recently started teaching that in elementary school. And that's taking off very slowly. Um, on the sciences side, they're pretty high level. The school system is generally high level. I mean, we send our sons to uh, uh, we, to public school, and uh, we're very happy with it. And there's also um, quite a big network of private schools and universities. There's, uh, I think, four or five top universities in Japan that are considered very high level for the country. But again, when these students go out and um, into student exchange programs, or they just go out to study or work in a different country, they're usually a bit shocked because the um, the way that they teach here is still very um, conforming. I mean, you don't get to ask too many questions or exercise your brain. It's really a matter of uh, memorizing and then spitting out stuff, which is why a lot of the expats, once their children reach um, junior high or high school age, a lot of them like to put them in international schools just to... Um, avoid them turning into a sort of suited penguin robots, which is what the Japanese education system tends to point them towards. But uh, on the elementary school level, it's great. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we don't get in the West, like um, everyone takes care of each other. They, you know, they make little gardens together. They take care of animals. The kids help clean the school and cook the meals and stuff. That's really great to, um, to expose them to at a younger age. It's just, again, once they reach that junior high um, age, you might want to open their minds a bit more. Gotcha. So is it is it the typical structure, like a K through fifth or sixth, and then sixth to eighth, and then ninth to twelfth? Yep, yep, pretty much the same. And gotcha. the, um, the healthcare system is pretty good. We all have national healthcare. Uh, you do pay for it, but the amount... Um, varies depending on your income. So lower income levels wouldn't have to pay much and higher income levels pay a bit more. And then the national health system covers you for 66%. So you have to pay a third of the expenses uh, when you see any doctor out of pocket and the rest is covered. Gotcha. So what what is what is like the average income out there? Is there kind of an average income or... Um, it varies a little bit between cities, but it is pretty low, and the cost of living is also pretty low. So people in the West usually have um, the image of Japan from the 90s sort of uh, stuck in their brains. So early 90s, there was a big economic crash here, and the country went into deflation for about 20, 25 years after that. So if you look at um, 
late 80s, early 90s, property prices, cost of living, everything was uh, double that in the West. These days, the West has gone up and Japan's gone down, so it's more like half. Uh, average income is uh, in Tokyo, entry-level jobs or shift workers, convenience store workers, that sort of thing, usually get about, I want to say, 1,200 yen an hour, so probably about 10 US dollars an hour. And then it goes up from there. Um, average office worker would usually get something like $2,500 a month, roughly. In Tokyo, it can be a bit higher than that. In other cities, a bit lower than that. And uh, then depending on depending on the, their level in the corporate ladder, they go upwards from there. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, 10 bucks an hour is still pretty pretty good. That's about what we are out here. Uh, but it, buys, it buys you a lot more here because cost of living is very low. I mean, if you want to compare um, to other countries, you can get a decent lunch here for under $10. And you can rent a place, mind you, not a fabulous place, but you can rent a comfortable studio or a one-bedroom apartment in most cities. Um, again, depending on the city, but anywhere between, say, 300 bucks a month for the cheaper, older places and maybe up to 1000 or 1200 a month um, for nicer, newer places. But space is a premium. So once you go beyond the single-bedroom apartment, uh, prices tend to jump more highly. Gotcha. So what what would you say the top five people are that are coming to Japan? If they're looking to invest, what, what areas are they typically coming from? Um, it sort of ebbs and flows with the global economy. So, for example, when we started, we started just after the uh, global financial crisis. We went into business uh, late 2011. And at that time, the U.S. had a lot of cheap deals available. So nobody from the USA was really looking outside of their own backyard. Most of our customers at that time were from Australia and Singapore, so places which are uh, where property is usually not very affordable and the market is uh, pretty limited for cash flow. So these kind of people always tend to look outside regardless. And as things improved in the USA and in Europe and North America generally, we started to get more and more customers from those areas as the deals dried out. So these days, uh, probably 40, 50% of our customer uh, are from North America, USA and Canada. Um, fair few, maybe 20% or so from Europe, and the rest are still from Singapore and Australia. But when we started out, it was just the other way. So we had a very low amount from these countries and a lot of them from Singapore and Australia. Um, Hong Kong, which is another um, rich location in Asia, a lot of people coming from there. And the rest are sort of all over the place. So a few from New Zealand, Thailand, Malaysia, um, anywhere really. And the... Investor profile tends to be either, again, it depends on the country. So people from uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, from Europe tend to be professional couples in their late 30s to early 50s. Um, from the Americas, it could be um, well-off individuals or families sort of towards retirement and from Asia, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia tend to be, generally speaking, 
Um, older people, retired or semi-retired, some family offices that are investing on behalf of a family. So it could be, you know, two brothers and a sister, or it could be a mom and dad purchasing on behalf of the kids, that sort of thing. Gotcha. With with land being such a premium and space, do you, is Japan going up a lot? A lot of tall buildings. Um, what what is what does it look like in regards to that respect? Um, again, there's a huge difference here between the uh, city city land and rural land. Rural land um, goes for a song. I mean, the the smaller townships are dying out and. Japan's got the world's fastest declining population. So they're not having too many babies here. The population is getting older. Um, and that means that a lot of the smaller townships and villages are sort of uh, dying out. The population is dropping sharply and they're conglomerating into bigger cities. So in those areas, land is, is pretty much given away. You can buy a lot of plots for just a few thousand dollars including some old, beautiful, traditional houses that might need a bit of work, but have got good bones and uh, can carry on for years to come. In the bigger cities, um, depends. So back in late 2012, those 25 years of deflation sort of bottomed out. And since then, it's been going up in most major cities in the last two years in all major cities. So Tokyo and Osaka are now close to their pre-bubble days of the early 90s again. And their land and property uh, structures as well are pretty expensive. Other cities that have been going up, the rest of Japan's big cities have been going up, but not quite as sharply. So places like Fukuoka, Nagoya, uh, Kyoto, Sapporo, which are the other big cities, um, still have a fair bit to go before they'll reach um, high prices. So... Fukuoka City, for example, which has gone quite sharply up in recent years, but still has a long way to go. You can still get um, those studio and one-bedroom units again, probably as low as forty or fifty thousand US. And in Tokyo, the older buildings you might be able to buy into at a hundred and fifty, hundred and twenty thousand US, but they're, they're, those kind of deals are getting more rare. Gotcha. What uh, what do you think one of the causes is for the declining population? Is it just they're not having babies as often, or what is it like a is it a mindset out there, or what is it? Well, it's difficult to maintain a birth rate. I think it's mostly a female thing. So, women in Japan, as I was mentioning, it's still a very patriarchal society. Women are sort of relegated to um, office roles or, or housekeeping roles. But the thing is, they're not, they're not that insulated from the rest of the world. So this is not Afghanistan or, or, you know, some backwards country where you can keep the population sort of blindsided and just get them doing what you want them to do. So they are yeah. exposed to modern culture. They, they get their TV, they get their movies, they travel abroad. They see that women in other countries have a better life. They're not delegated to these roles. They're not expected to behave in certain ways. Um, so there's really no reason for them to have babies to increase their workload. They're going to be happier staying single or having a single child. They're just not interested in, in having families. And right. yeah, I mean, I guess until there's a there's a big change either an immigration policy. That's the other thing that immigration policies here are still very insular as well. The, um, 
the government and the people who vote for the government are very much avoiding to allow large numbers of immigrants into the country. They're worried about their uh, traditional, their cultural um, properties. And, the, and they're right in, the, in a way, I guess. I mean, they will have to definitely change the way that the country is run once they allow a large number of immigrants in here. But unfortunately, they don't have a choice because if you don't allow immigrants in and the, pop- the population are not having babies, it's going to keep dropping. And um, work-life balance is not really a thing here. So again, the men are not there um, to form those family ties. A lot of people are staying single. Um, the amount of people that are just happy going to work then going back home and sleeping until the next morning kind of thing is huge here. Okay, interesting. So what what that what does that do to your guys' like inventory or how is that affecting the growth of the cities? Are they, are they still expanding quickly or do you see it more of a steady pace or what does that look like? Well, most major cities are growing um, in two ways. So some of them are growing naturally. Fukuoka, where we live, for example, is one of the only places in the country where people are actually still having babies. The population is relatively young. Um, other cities, so Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya are growing, but they're mainly growing because people are migrating into them from other smaller townships. And again, those smaller um, areas are conglomerating into the bigger cities. And that's probably, I mean, no one's got a crystal ball, but even if it stays as it is now, that's probably got a good 20 or 30 years of growth in it before everything is absorbed into the bigger cities. And hopefully there'll be some policies, um, to increase, uh, increase either immigration or female, just general life satisfaction, which will hopefully increase natural births as well. Um, and the other thing it does for us um, operationally is the class of properties that are easiest to find tenants for are singles uh, or couples properties. So in other countries, family-sized homes might be the go. Here it's mostly singles, apartments, condo units, or smaller apartments that will allow for a young couple or maybe a young couple with a baby sort of thing will be the easiest to find tenants for. Gotcha. So there's really not a lot of people with the need of a three, four bedroom, huge house. Um, Not to rent. No, the people who do have larger families that would require a house of this size would usually quickly get a mortgage and just buy one. Gotcha. Okay. So you're covering the renting aspect. What, what does it look like when it comes to renter versus owner ratio? Is it a majority of a rental population or owner population? Um, I think the last numbers I saw was about 60 or 61% uh, owners to renters. Gotcha. Okay. And is that majority, is that majority demographics being families or just, just it, in general? Um, these would normally be families, but not necessarily um, families with kids, because in Japan, a lot of the families um, live together with their parents. So it could often be um, just a couple that got married and then uh, brought the uh, parents on either side to live with them. Okay, interesting. So what what do what's the typical price structure? I know you have have touched on it a little bit. Um, what a, one bedroom is going for. Um, if you want to cover it a little bit more, what what is are, are those condos? Are those like standalone homes? And um, for investment purposes, condos are usually the preferred profile, just because Japanese building standards and building materials um, 
tend to be on the light side. So there's not many uh, concrete or stone houses. Uh, most of them are wood or steel framed wood, um, which brings a lot of maintenance into the equation and a lot of uh, upkeep. So for investment purposes, again, the more stable income would be from condo units. Um, and those are also, I mean, if they're beyond two or three floors, they're usually going to be reinforced concrete, which gives you um, gives you more stability um, as far as upkeep goes. And if you're purchasing a condo, then your um, your HOA fees, the uh, the owner's co-op fees that you're going to be charged per month will cover most of the structural aspects. So you're not going to have any surprises down the track, which also adds some value. Plus, with families being smaller because they're not having too many babies, people prefer to live in smaller condo units close to the center of the big cities. So, again, just easier to find tenants for. Gotcha. What, so, with the, the condos, do they have do these people have to get approved to go there? Or is it just like any normal building where you just buy it and you live there? No, no, no. No special approval required. Okay. Do they come with a lot of amenities? Um, the sky's the limit, but most of them, the ones that would generate higher cash flow for investors would usually be pretty basic. There might be, depending on the size of the building, um, the bigger the amount of units, the more likely it's going to have um, some staff either all throughout the week or at least two or three days a week. They're going to have a, a building manager present. Um, most of them have security of some sort, so you know, sort of secure keypad entry. Uh, so you can't just walk into the common area of the building. Um, there'd be some gardening around them. Depending on the units and how old or young the building is, um, there might be a laundromat on the ground floor. So for the older buildings that were not designed with a laundry bay uh, inside the units, there's going to be a laundromat on the ground floor. Um, otherwise, I mean, yeah, the, there's a lot of places with... Um, gyms and swimming pools and uh, higher maintenance and video intercoms and so forth. But then building fees would get higher too. So it's sort of a balance between, I mean, most tenants wouldn't expect it unless they're pretty young and modern and that would uh, reduce yields for the investor as well. So most of our customers usually go for the older buildings. On the investment standpoint. Yeah. Lower fees and all that stuff. Gotcha. What so what do, what does the uh, luxury market look like? What how much of a up is it for a two three bedroom or like do they have like penthouse up at the top of these towers or what does that kind of look like? Um, most of them would do. I want to say about half or maybe more than half would. Um, in the center of the big cities, they can be very very expensive. So again, Tokyo, Yokohama, Osaka. Um, the sky's the limit. There's multi-million dollar uh, sort of mansion-looking condos. Um, cash flow-wise, these probably would not do very good for you unless you're going to be renting them out on a monthly or weekly basis. Um, with long-term tenants, they're not going to be generating huge cash flow. They would do well if the, uh, if the uh, property market continues to do well, then they'll probably gain in value more than the smaller units. But whether that's going to happen or not is anyone's guess in Japan. So people normally uh, enter Japan uh, for cash flow, for hassle-free tenants, because the tenants here are very docile, easy to manage, and the professional companies that you work with are easy to manage as well. 
um, and not necessarily for capital growth and also for affordability. I mean, if you can get a, a 20 or 30 or $50,000 uh, unit, you can sort of diversify a lot more. So instead of buying a single expensive property, you can buy five or six cheaper ones. And then just having more hedging. I mean, if a tenant moves out, that's a part of the income stream gone and not all of it. Got do, do you guys have Airbnb out there? We do, but uh, there's been a revamp of the laws uh, in June last year. It's a lot more structured now. You can only do it in certain areas in certain ways. You can only rent out the place for half the year. You have to have somebody um, on hand within, depending on the city, within somewhere between 500 to 1,000 meters away from the property to be able to attend to any emergency. Um, so... These days, the people doing Airbnb are either owners, occupiers who are leasing out extra rooms in their homes or companies that have actually, companies or individuals that have set up companies that actually applied for a um, hotel license, uh, which is relatively easy to get in Japan. It doesn't require too much. And then they can rent it out throughout the year. Is there, is there an offset in like taxes that they have to pay for once they register it? Um, well, I mean, once they set up a company, they switch over to corporate tax, uh, which becomes more profitable once you hit the uh, uh, the tax. I mean, tax is capped for corporate at, um, I think, 30%, whereas for individuals, it can go beyond that. So if you've got a smaller portfolio, you're better off owning it as an individual. Once you reach a certain level, you want to switch to corporate. Um, accountants can advise on this. But if you want to do Airbnb, um, you definitely want to set up a company structure and perhaps apply for a hotel license. It makes it a lot easier. Um, there's sort of an in-between. You can do monthly leases, um, which are considered normal leases, so they don't fall under the uh, short-term stay legislation. And then, I mean, building management companies might not like it very much, but there's not really anything that they can do about it legally. So if you, as long as you've got a lease in place, um, for a minimum period of one month or even shorter than that price-wise, as long as the lease period is for one month, then you can rent the uh, property out for shorter terms and you can make more income that way. What, okay, what, what, is the, what does the tax rate look like? Do you guys have any extra assessments? Do you guys have like a standard uh, property tax throughout the city or does it vary or how do, what, what does that look like? Um, it varies a bit depending on the size of the property. So properties under 200 square meters um, get a tax cut. So the property tax is usually half of what it is for bigger properties, sometimes even down to a quarter. And that usually translates um, into something between three quarters of a percent to one and a half percent of the purchase price per annum. Bigger properties pay more. Um and again, depends on the city, depends on the age as well. Gotcha. So it doesn't it doesn't fluctuate too much. No, not hugely. No. Is, is there is there any other special assessments or anything that you guys see, or is it just pretty much that just the flat property tax? It's the property tax and obviously the income tax, which is pretty lenient in Japan. I mean, before you reach. Um, before you reach about 3,500 US net, you're tax-free and you can claim all of your purchase and running costs and carry them forward um, three years for individual, five years for corporate. 
So usually people who just own one or two smaller or older condo units would be tax-free um, throughout the investment lifespan. And beyond that, it goes up to 5% and stays there uh, for every dollar thereafter until you reach about $20,000 net. And then it goes up to 10% and so forth. So pretty lenient on the income tax. Gotcha. Okay. So I really have two more kind of questions and then we'll kind of wrap it up. How how is a common person buying a home out there? Are you do they do a lot of loans or do you see cash or what is the typical way somebody's buying? For our customers who are mostly not residing in Japan, it's cash only. So Japanese banks, so Japanese lenders normally do not lend to foreigners unless they've got a, a permanent or semi-permanent visa. So there's not too many bank loans out there for non-resident foreigners. If you've been living here for a while and you're on a more permanent or semi-permanent visa, it's quite easy to get a loan for your um, owner-occupied property to live in. Investment properties can be a bit more tricky, and they've also tightened up in recent years even more. What What is the average length that you have to live there before you're considered a resident? Um. It's more a case of what your visa is like than whether you've um, been living here for a long time. So if you're on a business visa that gets continually renewed, you could be here for 10, 15 years, but you're still considered um, a risk from the uh, lender's perspective. Once you switch over to a long-term resident visa, um, which is usually the next phase uh, after you've lived here for, say, 10 years, then you're, you've got your options a bit more open. Gotcha. What do you guys use a title company, an escrow company? And then is there any major fees that are associated when you're buying a property? I know we're talking to them in Canada and they have like a land tax. That's like 40 to $45,000 on every parcel. Do you guys have anything like that there where it's kind of a drastic fee or something somebody should look out for or pay attention to? Nothing crazy. I mean, purchase costs, if you're using a buyer's agent like ourselves, uh, purchase costs for the cheaper properties could be up to 20% worst case. And if you're buying directly from the realtors, it could be up to 15% worst case, usually ends up being 2 or 3% uh, lower than that. And that's composed of um, the realtor fee, which is somewhere between 3 to 5% uh, purchase tax which you uh, pay after the purchase is usually, it varies according to the official level of the property by the government, but it's usually around 2.5% of the purchase price. And then legal and registration costs, again, which can vary depending on the official eval, can be anywhere from 3% or 2.5% for the more expensive properties and all the way up to 7 or 8% for the cheaper ones. So worst case... Um, 15% if you're buying direct, 20% if you need to use someone like us. Okay, gotcha. That's pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Um, and what what is the average price out there, give or take, on the lower end and something on the little higher end that people are looking at? What are the typical prices? Well, the lower end, again, if you're looking at rural, the lower end can be just a few thousand dollars and you'll get yourself a nice land parcel um, somewhere out in the sticks. The higher end, um, again, sky's the limit. I mean, central, central luxurious Tokyo properties can be up to maybe three, four million, usually not beyond that. 
I'd say the median is, um, especially for investment purposes, you get your best cash flow if you stick to properties under 70 or 80,000 US. Okay, that's, that's not bad at all. And that's getting you how much building? Um, they'll get you a single condo unit or two of them, depending on the city. And the cash flow would probably be, again, depending on the city, somewhere between five to nine percent uh, net pre-tax. So including all of your purchase and known running costs, but not including your annual taxes or any unknowns like vacancies or maintenance and so forth. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm we pretty much covered as much as we can with the time. Um, in, in closing, what would you suggest to anybody that's looking to go and either move there or invest there? What are some some things that you just want to point out or closing statement? Um, your due diligence here should consist firstly and foremost of um, the population trend. So you want to buy into a city that's got growing or stable population, which in Japan is not a given. So you have to look into the city fundamentals, make sure that the population there um, is in growth mode or at least in stable mode. You want to make sure that they've got more than a single uh, industry so that if anything dries out, the city has still got other things to account for it. And beyond that, again, like we've mentioned, stick to the condos, um, avoid the houses, unless it's for your own personal use. But for investment purposes, I would avoid the houses. And with the uh, condo units, you want to look at the renovation history, the reserve funds pool status, just make sure they correlate so they got enough there to cover for any ongoing big renovations if they haven't been done in the last 10 years or so. Perfect. Well, with that, we appreciate you being on. And uh, my name is Brian Poor. And I am Patty Poor. And we're agents out in SoCal. So whether you're coming or going, and if you have any questions at all, feel free to let us know. And if you're considering investing in Japan, reach out to Zip. He is awesome. The guy is full of knowledge. And uh, I know we've talked quite a bit before he came on here. So all of his links will be below if you want to reach out to him on WhatsApp, Instagram, um, whatever he's looking for, it will be down there. So if we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so there you have it. Like I said, great interview. Love the format. Definitely worth subscribing to the Leaving California podcast if you're based in the USA or even if you're not and just curious about other markets worldwide. As they mentioned, they've only just started covering other countries, so I'm sure there's plenty of fascinating global coverage coming from them. Definitely worth tuning in. You'll find the link again to the podcast in this episode's show notes, as well as the registration link to our webinar. If you are registering, again, be sure to fill in your email address in that form if you do want to join us live. And please let us know what you thought about this episode or about the podcast in general in the comment section of wherever you might have found it. And if you're tuning in via iTunes, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating, a worded review, let us know what you think. And of course, share this episode with anyone who might find it interesting. I think it should be particularly useful for anyone in your networks who's not really familiar with Japan yet. Definitely covers a lot of the stuff that people would like to know if they've never actually been here. They'll probably thank you for it, I'm sure. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and at the Leaving California podcasts, we wish you all a great day or night, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. And until next time, Yoshiku.